Hello and welcome to a special Christmas episode of the album years. Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy Christmas. Yes, said with extreme <laughs> gusto. Yeah, that was gusto, I thought. Now, we have a guest. I'm going to introduce the guest in a moment. But but first of all, you know, obviously, you know, that our normal MO is to talk about a particular year, talk bollocks about, you know, music from a particular year. This particular episode, we're not going to do that. We're just going to talk bollocks. We're going to take stock uh, of of the podcast because we've been running this for about, what, almost two years now, right, Tim? Almost two years, yeah. Uh, started at the beginning of the first lockdown. So I remember... Having the conversation with you, I think, in late March of 2020. It was a lockdown project, wasn't yeah. it? It was one of those things where we, we kind of saw this sort of chasm of spare time opening up in front of us and thought, what are we going to fill this time with? And one of the things that you and I discussed, had discussed, I think, already was the idea of doing a podcast. And it seemed like the right time, didn't it? Indeed. And we felt a need to spout nonsense, really. So we're going to do that. And it seems like a lot of you out there also enjoy us spouting nonsense. So we're going to do nothing but spout nonsense on this particular episode. Um, we're going to talk about um, the podcast, the, the, our experience of making it. Tim has been keeping a very, very firm eye on what you've been saying about it. And I think <laughs> it's been mostly positive, hasn't it, Tim? Mostly yeah, positive. I'd say 95, 96%, very, very positive. And one of the things that's been really, really sweet is how many people say that we've introduced an album to them or we've reintroduced an album to them that it's kind of encouraged enthusiasm and discovery and that was the whole point of the podcast really yeah i mean that's amazing to hear isn't it i mean because that you know at the end of the day our, our kind of schoolboy enthusiasm we're hoping that's going to kind of rub off on other people i'm going to bring in our special guest now now i think a lot of people who listen to this show will already know this guy because he runs an amazing website called superdeluxeedition.com which i think it's fair to say has a lot in common with this particular show in terms of the kind of people that it's appealing to. So I'm going to bring him in now. This is Paul Sinclair. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I, I think it's fair to say that your your website, so just to explain to people who don't know about Paul's website, your website is kind of focused on, well, your tagline is holding the music in your hands. Is that right? Have I paraphrased that slightly? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely correct. Yeah, it's very much about um, people that still enjoy buying physical music because obviously... A lot of people stream these days. A lot of people just don't see the value in buying music. But, um, yeah, the website's about people who enjoy buying physical product, who enjoy buying reissues, box sets, that kind of thing. It's more than that, though, isn't it? Because it's also about, or at least it appeals to people that I think like the idea of the album as an experience, as a listening experience. Now, this, of course, becomes this this becomes increasingly, you know, out of fashion as a way of listening to music. We do live in the era of, you know, playlist culture, don't we? That kind of jukebox mentality where you don't listen necessarily to albums from beginning to end. You don't have that kind of ritual of putting on and immersing yourself in a, in a musical continuum, a musical journey. But I think all the people that kind of follow your site, I think it's fair to say they love the idea of the album as an experience yeah don't they? very much so and i think you know that's they're buying the albums that they, they love all over again that's kind of that's that's one of the things that appeals to them not only do they love the album but they want to buy the same albums again and again with the bonus tracks and the 5.1 mixes and all the rest of it and the other thing is you know they love music so much a lot of people i've noticed they post their pictures up of their music rooms in their house so you know, they've got the luxury of us, uh, maybe it's the end of the lounge or it's a separate room or whatever, but it's not just, you know, listening casually to a bit of music. It's having space, having all your records on the wall, having the, creating an environment where you can just sit there and sort of immerse yourself in the music. And I think, 
you know that's that's really important to a lot of um, SDE readers. And is this is this very much a generational thing? Are are we the last generation that this will be true of? Are there? I'm sure there's always the outliers. The you know the 17 year old kid who loves buying vinyl, but they are the outliers, aren't they? We're kind of the last generation that had that mentality. There might be, but you've got to realise that things do change. I mean, obviously, if you think of say the publishing industry, up until quite recently, the Kindle was becoming incredibly dominant. And over the last five years, book sales, physical book sales have increased. Streaming seems to have destroyed music and it seems to have destroyed music in terms of form, in terms of people's ability to deep listen, in terms of musicians' ability to earn income in a way that it hasn't with other mediums. So the film industry, you know, if Amazon Prime are, let's say, paying Mike Lee for a film exclusive, he'll be paid the same amount, if not more. His cameramen will be paid the same amount, if not more. You go into something like publishing, and again, there isn't an equivalent of streaming in literature. So you have the Kindle, which is an equivalent of a download, or at least there's a proper royalty. And it's, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that music has allowed itself to be the one artistic form that's absolutely been beaten by streaming and the digital age. And it kind of still astonishes me that there seems to be sort of a trashing of history. You know, if I think of No Man's work, for example, half our albums don't even have the proper release years on them. There's something really shabby about it. I I think you're absolutely right. But don't we, in a sense, live in a world now, and and Paul's site is kind of testament to that, that there is more information. For the people that want it, there is more information about the sort of minutiae of making records than ever before. There are documentaries about almost every artist you could think of online. There are YouTube clips deconstructing every classic song and explaining to you what the artist did and why it's amazing. So there seems to be more obsession about those kind of details of making music than ever before. You know, and Paul, you must have, I mean, you must have seen this because your website is about 10 years old now, is it? Yeah, 10 years, yeah. So you must have seen, I mean, I've noticed this being someone that's kind of been involved in remixing and you mentioned the 5.1 mixing and now it's becoming Atmos mixing too. You must have seen this incredible explosion of the whole sort of box set phenomenon. I mean, when you started, it was probably just one or two a year. And it's now even like albums that were considered C-list albums by, by artists are getting this extraordinary lavish box set treatment, aren't they? Yeah, no album is too low to be reissued as a box set in terms of, you know, what it, <laughs> what it did the first time around but you're right I mean the the sort of the amount of knowledge and discussion that goes on online is incredible and there's nowhere to hide anymore for these for for the record industry that are putting out these sets you know um, everyone seems to know everything so when it comes to making mistakes or putting the wrong version of a track or not getting something right um, you know there's they get a lot of negative feedback because you know, the mechanisms are there for people to obviously go online, take part in discussions on sites like SDE or wherever, and sort of try and sort of hold the industry to account or, or hold the record companies to account when they when they get something wrong. So that's 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 another shift that's happened. You know, in the old days, a CD would come out in 1992, there'd be a wrong track on it and, you know, nothing would ever happen. But now, you know, there's these feedback mechanisms and, and you know, and you get a lot of complaining and a lot of moaning, but... Um, yeah, for better or for worse, that's kind of where we are. Yeah, and I think that you know one of the things is about streaming that sometimes you always have a reaction to that. So the production of box sets and vinyl reissues tends to be far more thorough than it was pre-streaming because you realise what you've got to compete against. It's encouraged 
more detail, more attention on artwork. I mean, I don't know about you, Stephen, but for me, when I'm doing an album, ever since, you know, the age of download and streaming, I've tried to do what you can't do very easily on the computer, have quite lavish covers, maybe use Mm. a string quartet if I can afford it. In other words, more detail in the sound, more detail in the way. It's actually forced me to think about what an album can be and how much I put into it. It's made me believe in it more. I'm sure Paul will concur on this, that just doing a, a, a disc in a crystal case is no longer enough. Yeah. You you have to think about the way you present your music. Otherwise, why would someone bother to buy a physical piece in the exactly. end, at the end of the day? Um, so that's almost a return, isn't it, to the golden age of, you know, the beautiful vinyl and the gatefold sleeve with the inner bag and all the inserts and the novelty stuff that went, you know, that people used to really think about artwork um, in the sort of great e- era for vinyl. And then we kind of lost that with CD, which was kind of almost pseudo software in the way it was presented. It was neither one thing or the other. But I think the music industry kind of gave up too easily on the CD. I mean, they made fortunes out of it in the 90s and then, and then when mm. the sort of threat of illegal downloading and Steve Jobs and iTunes came in, um, instead of kind of defending it robustly, and uh, they, they sort of gave up on it. And, and the same goes now with the, with the so-called vinyl revival. You know, they just, they just dumped the CD and switched to vinyl. Mm. And it's a bigger margin product. They didn't, you know, I, I often say this, but you know, the, the industry could have campaigned and worked with the motor industry to... Um, to keep CD players in cars, you know, because that was the one reason people sure. would still buy CDs because I'm going on a long journey. I'm going to take a box of CDs and play them in the car. But they just happily let, you know, Bluetooth connections and all that take over. And there's another reason not to buy CDs. So um, there's a sort of short-term kind of view with the music industry. They just focus on the thing that's going to make them the most money at the moment. And they, they kind of did that when CDs took over from vinyl, they, you know, they, they bodged it up around the time of the MP3, but now they're back on the, the trail with, um, with vinyl, which, um, and they, apart from box sets where you get lots of CDs in one box, they're kind of not interested in the CD. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I think, I think that of course they are still supporting CD, but only in this kind of multi-disc uh, format where the price is a premium. And I suppose the other thing that you've noticed during your time running the website is the kind of normalization of things like including demos. Yes, exactly. Um, and, you know, board tapes, uh, you know, very roughly recorded live tape, almost, you know, taking a bootleg that's been available yeah. online or, you know, available to fans on cassettes for years and years, cleaning up and somehow selling that back to the same people mm. that already had mm. it on a cassette mm. or a bootleg CD. And that's become, you know, a way of filling out these box sets hasn't it kind of making them into multi but i think format. cd as well i think sometimes artists can take um some responsibility because you know one of the things that when i first started burning shed was that cds were still selling a great deal and they were cheap to manufacture and you found that even a lot of artists outside of the major label system would do an album then they do the remix album then the live album of this then the demos and quite often there wasn't as much for me quality control it was very easy to produce these albums that would make a profit for the artists. And so I certainly think around the early 2000s, CDs were perhaps overpriced and artists exploited that by releasing material that should never have seen the light of day. And, you know, so, so in that sense, I think the, the companies are more responsible. And I think Paul's point about cars is entirely correct. But I think artists, some artists have to take some responsibility. And you and I, Stephen, you know, we've often had this idea that the CD ushered in the destruction of the album in a way because it, it 
people were filling the space yeah. rather than making mm. these statements. You know, form, format often dictates form. And as we're talking about, say, with streaming, one of the things they found is that people listening to streams now have the attention span of an average 1980s A&R person. If they've not got it in three or five seconds, they dismiss it. And it's kind of interesting that, you know, so many of the most important albums in history will be dismissed because they have slow three to ten minute introductions. And I think that, you know, we have found that it is dictating form that everything has to be a banger all the time. And this is a general because, of course, there are some people who are still deep listen, who stream. There are some people who will still take the album seriously. I mean, I stupidly still always listen to Tusk in the way Lindsay Buckingham intended. But, you know, (laughs) the point is that I will always listen to the album in the way that the artist intended. So uh, the other thing I wanted to say, Paul, is I love... Now, the thing is, I never read comments posted on any of my own social media, but I do read the comments that people post on your (laughs) website because I find it fascinating, partly because I relate to a lot of the sort of mentality of the people that are posting there. But also, I love this idea that a box set comes out and it's centred around a particular album and there's a remaster of the album and there's an album, there's a CD of demos and there's a CD or two or three or four of all the remixes that were attendant to that particular album and I love it when people come in and they say things like or it could have been a really good set except they've missed off the rare remixed (laughs) seven inch that only came out in Guatemala yeah yeah. disaster won't be buying this yeah that's that's glass is sort of you know half empty kind of mentality it's it's um yeah that's it's weird some people are just like that they'll they'll want they'll want to focus on the negative and not look at the positive and um yeah, you're always going to get people like that. But I think in general, certainly on my side, I mean, I do I do moderate it, you know, I get a bit of criticism because I moderate it quite firmly so that, you know, it's, people can have a friendly discussion and not think they're going to get jumped on or trolled or whatever. But it's also the box ticking thing. It's like, yeah... That got that, got that, got that, got that. <laughs> oh, that's not there. Never mind the fact that it's shit and I'm never <laughs> going to listen to it. It's not included. Disaster. And I think that's, you know, that comes back to what we were talking about earlier that these days, that sort of whole phenomenon of the box set mm. and that completism means that we're getting a lot of music and we're listening. To be fair, I do it too. I get box sets. I find myself listening to stuff that I'm not enjoying well, it. I mean, the thing is, we're in the third sort of generation of some of these albums now coming out of bo- as box sets, so they have to think of something new to add. So you know, you you get you get kind of Bob Dylan box sets, which literally have every take of every song of you know of an album, because you know we've already had some Bob Dylan box set ten years earlier that covered all the really important stuff. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's I think it depends on the approach from the artist and from the label. I mean, some people will say, look, you know that shit i don't want it on my box set and so i'm sorry you can't do it whereas other other people are a bit more relaxed and you know like you say some box sets are sort of they're all about let's compile every single commercially released single b-side extra track from a 12 inch that came out at the time and that that will be the and if that is your goal then you have to make sure you do it right otherwise the fans are going to come down on you but if if it's Mm. just kind of like you know here's a collection of interesting stuff from the time and we're not trying to be completely comprehensive then i think you know you're okay i think conversely though some artists you know kate bush peter gabriel uh, david bowie where a lot of fascinating work that actually is arguably as good as if not better yeah, than the album yeah, material yeah. doesn't appear on box sets you know i know bowie i remember talking in the early 90s about the fact he had two albums worth of low hero 
era outtakes. And I've got several outtakes. And for example, the original version of the album Outside, quite a lot of Kate Bush Bowie, out, Bowie outtakes that are actually braver, more interesting. Um, so on, on one level, you're right. Certain artists will spew every appalling Guatemalan B-side on the box set. And then other artists, the gems completely ignore. Well, Prince is, Prince is a classic example of that, isn't he? Because in his lifetime... He didn't want anything released, really, from the vault, you know. And then once he once he was gone, it was kind of the flood doors opened, which was, you know, just mm. shows you the difference. I think, he, I mean, he's the exception that proves the rule. You know, the, the, the two or three artists that Tim's mentioned are kind of the exceptions that prove the rule, aren't they? But I think, you know, what I think what I object to most is when you get those sets where you get the extra disc and you've got the big single from the record. So you've got the seven-inch edit followed by the mono seven inch edit, <laughs> followed by the the American remix, followed by the twelve inch version what, of the American wrong? remix. This is the same song. What's wrong with that, Stephen? That's brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's so boring. <laughs> followed well, by the Spanish well, language well, I, version of it. Well, I think when they're in a row, I agree, but if you can split them up and spread them out, I think it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But I mean, again, it's that, it's that box ticking thing. It's like everyone wants to have every single version. And it's not necessarily about making a satisfying listening experience, with exceptions. I mean, I'm saying you can do it. As you say, you can do these things well and you yeah, can do these things I mean, I've badly. helped put a few of these together, as you know, like Tears for Fears. And, um, so have uh, yeah, I. Yeah, exactly. And, but the thing I always have in my mind is that, you know, like an album like Songs from the Big Chair, Tears for Fears, you know, when that box set came out, you, you kind of think it's never going to come out again after this, or at least you think it's not going to. So, you know, even if this slightly kind of dodgy edit from Portugal or whatever isn't brilliant, you know, what's the harm in putting it on? Because it will, if someone somewhere wants that, you know, you've, they've missed the opportunity and they'll never get it again, you know. Well, the harm for us, it, it might just put us off it for good, that... that Dodgy edit from Portugal. Well, by the time you've worked your way through, you know, 55 tracks, <laughs> I don't think it's going to make any difference. But. Yeah, but also I would say that by the time you've worked your way through 65 tracks, you never want to hear that fucking song ever <laughs> again as long as you live. Indeed. Because you, you've heard 12 different versions of it. You know, and I think that's the point. I mean, you're right. There's always something that's going to want that. Is that, I suppose the, the, the number one question really is, is that a good enough reason to do it? Is that good? Because for years and years and years, the artist was responsible for what they allowed out of their own vault and what they allowed out of the studio. And now it seems to me it's flipped. It's almost like the fans demand. The fans demand that they have every single take of Bob yeah, Dylan that, running that's through. That's true. That's true. I always think the artists have had they had their chance to do the the artistic expression. They had the album, the nine track album in 1985 or whenever it was. You know, so they've sort of done that. So the box set isn't really so much about an artist trying to, um, you know, trying trying to do something artistic. I think it's a bit more about, you know, it's a bit more fan centred, and and it doesn't really matter. I don't think too much if if things don't flow in a kind of artistic way. You're right, but there's also I think we're, we're only we're not only talking about reissues here. There is an expectation these days, and I know as someone that's making records, and Tim obviously the, the same. There is an expectation there will be a special edition from the get go, and that that special edition will include demos, instrumentals, rejects. Um, I suppose in a way, though, I'm kind of arguing with myself here. I, I suppose in a way that's no different to the you know the old tradition of the B side, you know the leftover, the sort of track that didn't quite measure up that ended up on the b side of the single or on the 12 inch single and i used to love those things you know so um, i mean i mean, I mean your, your albums that have been coming out in recent years Stephen. i mean your 
you know, the, the box set versions are effectively denying you a box set in 20 years' time because you put everything on there already. But that, but that is the expectation. I think people are expecting, particularly from me now, kind of, I've kind of made a rod from my own back now. People are expecting me with every record to do a very lavish... And I love doing those but, things, so I'm but not actually, complaining. But that's but yeah, an interesting sh- point, though, because that's a shift because, you know, 10 years ago, box sets primarily were about old albums coming out again. But now every new record needs to have some kind of, if not a fully blown box set, at least a kind of deluxe edition with some extra tracks on it. And that that isn't something that used to happen. So that's because I think the record labels think, you know, there will be no 20th anniversary box set of whatever this new album is. So we've got to sort of make the most of it now, you know. So we talked about the comments on your website, uh, Paul. So Tim now has been compiling all of the negative comments, particularly about me, particularly about me. He's very, he, he, he really enjoys telling me about something negative. I can't that believe about there's me, any negative comments, surely. Well, apparently there has been. But anyway, we're not going to, we, we're going to no. ignore the negative comments. But Tim, you've, you've compiled some. Yeah, I've compiled. I, I do always tell Stephen what's been said about him and me. Generally speaking, as I said, 96% extremely lovely, very positive. So it's been, it's been a joy to do. And the response but has of been course, fantastic. A lot, a lot of the comments are about our terrible schoolboy errors that we make frequently, aren't they? I, I thought you threw them in deliberately, Stephen, you know. Just sort of... Well, sadly, sadly not, no. <laughs> I made a terrible, terrible error in the last episode, Songs from the Beehive by David Sylvian. And do you know the first person that alerted me to the terrible error was Richard Barbieri. <laughs> he was straight on text message to tell me that I'd made a terrible, terrible schoolboy error. So I do hang my head in shame, but there is always a few. Now, Tim edited all of his own out of the last episode. I don't want the mask of expertise to slip. So uh, what comment? What other schoolboy errors have the, have the listeners picked up on? Or what other comments have they had? over the over the, uh, well, the last week so. I, to be honest with you I've, I've not done it what i've done this time we we asked via your facebook and my facebook questions they would like to ask us about the show and one i think is kind of an interesting idea thomas barthelmius says i'd love you to do deep dives into your favorite drinking game artists do a whole episode on each and then maybe a deep dive into what specifically inspired you while working together on your collaborative albums e.g no man the artists that, that have become sort of part of the drinking game, if correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, are mm-hmm. Fripp. Yeah. Sylvian, is, is he one? He's in there. Eno, He's in there. talk, talk. Eno, talk, um, talk. What about the ham? The ham? The ham gets in a few of them. I'm surprised yeah. that Kate Bush and Bowie and Floyd haven't because they do get mentioned well i I'd, I'd love to do a drink i'd love to do a, a whole episode dedicated to one of those artists but only if people will continue the drinking game so if we do a yeah. whole episode uh on say robert fripp you yeah. must you must drink a shot every time we mention robert fripp <laughs> See, i will be the only one who will be sober because i haven't drunk since i was 18 so. just order the ambulance before the show begins yeah yes. okay <laughs> So what other comments have we, or questions have um, we got? Maybe something that Paul, Paul, can, Paul can chip yeah, in Yeah, well, Paul, yeah. we'll like this one. You'll love this. Go, go Chris Teig. Chris Teig says, further discussion of McCartney 2 would be most welcome. Well, now, now, <laughs> I was going to say that what we should do today is we should also go back and maybe review some of our own discussions about some of these albums. And perhaps we've been a bit unfair about some of them. Now, Paul, I remember you when we listened, when you listened to the very first podcast, you said to me... I think I could have made a better defence of McCartney 2 than Tim did on our right. very can, first episode. Can I? Right. Paul, thanks for your criticism. Thank you. Anyway, no. 
Well, I actually edited out because I did a lot of editing on that as well. And basically I spoke for probably, and we do this a lot. Um, when Stephen and I do this podcast, we can often speak for about three or four hours. And so the McCartney 2 discussion was about 10 times longer. And I just kind of cut it out because partly I'd not said what I wanted to say about it, but I was more vociferous and articulate in its defence than is heard. And I think we just left it as it was for comedy value. You're a very, 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 very poor apologist for Paul McCartney. I don't remember Tim. saying that, Stephen, anyway. I think Stephen's just winding you up. There, <laughs> but, but, but the McC- I mean, what have you got against Paul McCartney, Stephen Wilson? That's what I want to know. I don't have anything I mean, against... You, uh, have, have you said anything positive about him in any of your... Nothing. Well, the thing is, OK, right, we've only talked about McCartney too, right... And Press to Play, an album which I've not even heard, OK? Now, I have read your, your book on Press to Play, um, <laughs> yeah. and it doesn't make me want to go and listen to it, Paul, I've got to say. Well, the, fun, the funny thing is, Press to Play, I've actually got a bone to pick with Tim here because he yeah, said on. Press to Play is better than Tug of War, which is one of the most ridiculous <laughs> things I've ever heard said well, about Somebody else said, actually said, in what universe is Press to Play better than Tug of War? And I said, well, mine, clearly. Um <laughs> I just kind of like its artificial art pop wankery, if that makes any sense. (laughs) Tug of War, to me, didn't have the majesty or creativity or insanity of some of his 70s albums you know i, I quite like yeah, london town you know i, I know I'm but tug of, tug of tug of war has that craft work that songwritery craft work i mean it does have the george martin production which makes it maybe sound a little bit old-fashioned or whatever mm. but um press to play is a load of average songs sort of layered with hugh pageant production and once you take the production away which i i do enjoy that kind of mid-80s production but once you take it away there's not actually that much there left i i I would agree but this is my you know press to play you've opened your drawer and there's a whole load of really fascinating green goop in there with tug of war you've opened the next drawer and it's kind of cardboard ironed underpants (laughs) A nice metaphor. That's, yeah. A nice yeah. metaphor. Yeah. I, I I think I need to disabuse you guys of the notion that I've got something against Paul McCartney. Matter. <laughs> okay, listen. I My favourite Beatles song is essentially a Paul McCartney solo performance. Blackbird. Okay? Beautiful. Um, I love McCartney 1. If we've been talking about McCartney 1, I love it. Maybe I'm amazed. One of the greatest songs ever written by anyone, mm-hmm. I think. McCartney 2 is just not very good. No, 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 no. Coming up... <laughs> From from McCartney too. I think coming up is stands, you know, with any of his post Beatles solo work. I think coming up is one of the best songs he's ever written after the Beatles. Waterfalls. It's the new long and winding road. I mean, McCartney, McCartney won. I mean, it's it's a charming album, and he's still got the kind of shadow of the Beatles, and he's there playing his bass and his piano in Abbey Road or wherever. But McCartney too is is that is Paul kind of experimenting, you know, learning how to play early sequences, synthesizers. I mean, and sort of succeeding. And it's not really a mess. It's kind of it's a creative, experimental, commercial success. Which inventing is inventing drum and bass, Stephen. Coming up, got John Lennon out of the studio recording double fantasy i mean you know that's how good it was i think i think i was slightly uh, against it from the beginning because tim was making such preposterous <laughs> claims for it as he just has again there that mccartney too invented <laughs> drum and bass <laughs> i think Go- i think goldie ronnie size they still yeah. cite it yeah. the key so, album 
I think if you listen, if you listen to Check My Machine, which is a B-side from that record, that's like Gorillaz sort of 25 years earlier. Oh, no, you're it? doing it too now. Look, I listen, I would be the first to admit it's got some lovely songs on it. Waterfalls is indeed lovely. Coming Up is a great pop song. Band on the Run, great album. Ram, masterpiece, masterpiece. Um, I'm just not really... What about McCartney 3, Paul? Have you got anything to say about McCartney 3? I do quite like it, but I, th- I mean, I think the sad fact is, is McCar- Paul McCartney's voice just, you know... It's is, gone. It's no longer the wonder- wonderful instrument it once was. And so therefore, he doesn't, he doesn't create the melodies that he once created. And I think... Yeah, there. I, I did enjoy the record. I actually really liked the remix version as well that came out. But um, but the sad thing is, you know, you can't. Every time a new McCartney album is announced, you're sort of, you kind of, you're measuring your expectations. You're lowering them a little bit because you just know that you know his 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 days are gone a bit. I think he's one of those artists a bit. And I, I, in this case, he, there are parallels between him and people like Neil Young and Lou Reed while he was still alive, and Bowie also. Is that I think every time they release an album, the fan base is desperate to proclaim it a return to form, aren't they? And that desperation, I think, sometimes makes you listen through rose-tinted ears, if such a thing is possible. I know, I know. I mean, there's there's a wonderful track at the end of McCartney 3 called When Winter Comes. And, um, and I listened to the whole album and thought, yeah, this is pretty good in places. It's, you know, it's experimental. It's interesting. He, he has to do a bit more interesting things because he can't craft a brilliant pop song in the way that he mm. used to so it's quite experimental and quite nice but then at the end there was this song called when winter comes and um and it was beautiful and his voice was beautiful and i was thinking wow you know i was, I was almost brought me to tears listening to how good it was and then i realized it was an old song from 1992 that he'd shoved on the end of the record and and it, and it was kind of like, well, OK, I understand why that sounds so good now, because it's the Paul McCartney of nearly 30 years ago. But um, I, I think some artists manage to to work with their ageing voices. So people like Johnny Cash, Leonard Cohen, Scott Walker, you know, their later works were as good as their earlier works. And arguably, um, Bob Dylan, in a sense, ageing hasn't necessarily ravaged his voice. He never had a singer's voice and he's managed to make ageing work for him and I think it's kind of interesting that McCartney had such a sweet beautiful voice that perhaps that's one of the issues all the touring he's been doing over the last decade you know Mm. he doesn't seem to change the key of the songs that he sings and I think I don't really think that's helped very much to be honest with his voice I mean there are certain singers aren't there where age makes no difference Tom Waits Neil Young they sounded like 70 year old men at the beginning of their career so I mean in that sense I suppose McCartney Mm. had a lot more to lose um in, yeah, I mean it's it's very cruel. I think the you know the way that you know singers and songwriters lose their voice, and yeah, I mean I know it's just mother nature mm. and time and everything, but it's it's a it's a cruel blow when that gets taken away from mm. you. I think mm. true, but it, but it doesn't always happen. And obviously, we're seeing with an artist like Nick Cave, where actually his work he's grown into it. I think as he's developed as an artist in his sixties, he's arguably more creative than he was in his thirties. Quite a lot of people were asking us about favourite albums, albums that we give to one another as gifts and also what our favourite Christmas recordings are. We had quite a lot of those. Somebody here, Steve Fincham, says, have either of you walked into a record shop, heard some music playing in the shop and immediately thought, I have to buy this and walked out with the album? Not, not, for, not for many years, I have to say, but, but certainly, um, yeah, in, in, in my record buying days in the 80s, very, very often, um, even through the 90s. Yeah, I can't remember specific things, but yeah. I can think, well, 2000s, I remember specifically, bizarrely, I think it was Virgin in 
Norwich. And I think one was um, Sigur Ross, and I can't even pronounce it, Sveni Engler, which I think was the, the... And I heard that in the shop and was utterly blown away, had to buy it. And the next week I went in and they played the... Um, Goldfrap, uh, Lovely Head, which again absolutely floored mm. me in the shop and had to get, you know, both those cases had to buy I remember in. hearing Consolidated's Tool or Die in that record shop in Manchester, Tim. They had the, the basement with all the cheap records in it. You must have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and immediately buying that. Anyway, what about you, Paul? Last time you were in a record shop, heard something and couldn't resist buying like, it. I, I, I can't really remember, but I'm sh- like you, Stephen, I'm sure I did it. You know, you used to go to the front of our price and they'd have the little CD case mm. on there, wouldn't they? Showing you the album that they mm. were playing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been so long. It's a, sh- it's a shame, really, that that doesn't sort of exist in the same kind of way, other than obviously the independent network of um, record shops well, across is, the UK. Is, is, the equivalent now, is the equivalent now hearing, uh, seeing something on YouTube or getting a, you know, getting a text message from a friend and saying, check this band out and you go to, you follow the link and you hear the music. And I don't know about you, if I hear something I like on YouTube, I immediately tend to go and buy the album. You know, that's, that's just the yeah, way I would. I think that's probably, I think that's true. And, and also on the um, Super Deluxe Edition website, there's, People are always recommending things to other people, and that kind of community spirit, mm. I think, is you know wonderful. Okay, another comment or question, Tim. Well, here's one I've, I've not, I can't answer, but you, you two might be able to. Two parter, have you watched Get Back yet? And what are your thoughts about Peter Jackson's Sonic Restorations? This is from DC Daily, and I think it'd be fascinating for both of you to compare and contrast the George Martin and Giles Martin approaches to albums. Where you know I do have those, so I could kind of comment. Um, but I've not seen it. I have not yet, either. Actually. So, Paul, have you seen it? I, I, I have seen it, yes. And um, I think it's amazing. I mean, a lot of people have said, oh, it's too long, eight hours, you know, it's, it's boring. But um, I think it's, it's possibly the best document that we're ever going to get in terms of, like, how the Beatles worked together and operated together as a band. You know, so obviously it's, it's near the end. But um, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And, and the thing is having all the kind of in quotation marks boring stuff where they're trying to work out songs you know you need that because when they get to the end and they're on the rooftop or they're they're finishing off a song you know it means something then because you've sat through all you know you've sat through all the you know you've basically been in the position of the band members you've been sort of trying to understand what's going on what's good what's bad about this song and then you see the final product at the end. I think, I, th- I think it's amazing, absolutely amazing. Well, well I think it's what's kind of amazing about it is how young they were, because I don't think any of them were in their 30s at that stage. And you, you think of how they'd gone from being a kind of rock and roll covers band in Liverpool to this, you know, the birth of um, Mersey Beat, and then, you know, via help, Sergeant Pepper's, Abbey Road. I mean, the growth of the musicians over an astonishingly short period of time. That's the thing that always gets me about the Beatles. I mean, exactly. It was this was January 1969. So you know, if you if you go back five years, you know, they hadn't even gone to America and sort of no, you know, no. had a hit with "I Want to Hold Your Hand," which is sort of unbelievable when you think of it in those terms. Yeah. The other thing I got from that documentary was just the sadness of of how it all deteriorated because. Um, you know what Peter Jackson has done is he's reframed that whole era and you know and it sounded like hype at the beginning oh they were really happy they weren't arguing and you kind of thought really I'm not sure I believe that but but actually it's true you know they John Lennon was very funny Yoko was sitting there not really annoying anyone just a bit weird that she was there but you know she wasn't she wasn't annoying anyone or you know 
really sort of um, sort of stopping them doing what they wanted to do. And I think it was the Alan Klein thing that really was was the big thing that ended up sort of making it go downhill. But it, it looked and felt as if there was another few Beatles albums at least, you know. Um, well, I, I think pretty, sometimes pretty in, with bands falling apart, you know, and Stephen and I know this from experience with a lot of bands falling apart, it's often when people don't talk, they don't communicate. You know, if you look at, say, the disintegration of the Smiths, it seems that people were spreading rumours behind the scenes and Morrissey and Marr, for whatever reason, couldn't discuss it. And um, I think, you know, one of the good things I've always liked about working with Stephen is that actually both of us have always been incredibly honest and open. So I, I won't go into it, but we had... Um, an industry manager who actually at one point tried to be very divisive and actually both of us just talked to one another outside of this and I remember him saying I hate you two you're the only two people I've ever worked with who actually talk so (laughs) that's kind of interesting yeah it seems to happen so often in bands it's unbelievable and I think as soon as individual band members get different management people looking after their affairs then I think you're in trouble and that's effectively what happened you know Paul had John Eastman Linda's dad um, John, John, and the others went with Alan Klein, and and that was a divisive path that you know ultimately split them up. I think. Yeah, and I think you're right. Um, okay, more questions. Okay, this is a, somebody here asked about seventeen questions, but I'll, I'll go to the first two. This is Shane Borger, or Borger, and he goes, Stephen, how do you really feel about Genesis? And then he says, make sure that Tim tells us his story about buying Foxtrot again. So I went into Warrington Rumbleys and I got Angelic Upstarts. I'm an upstart. Oh, not that Fox story Trot. again! Oh my god! <laughs> I think there's a there's a perception that I actually actively dislike them. Um, I don't. I quite like them. I, I think there was almost like this automatic expectation that I must love Genesis because I am, uh, you know, so immersed in that world of progressive rock. Yeah, you're the prince of prog. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And (laughs) and actually, there's a lot of progressive rock that I'm fairly ambivalent about. There's some I quite like, and there's some I love. And the bands I loved were Floyd, King Crimson, and Yes, I I love Yes. And there were bands I quite liked. Uh, Genesis would have been one of those bands. I don't have all the records. And uh, actually, I'm quite fond of some of the more pop-orientated stuff. There's an album called And Then There Were Three that I think has got some really beautiful songs on it. Very sweet. Well, well, we're going to do 1978 next. And um, I think there are going to be quite a few albums like that that are unexpected. I think both of us quite like, plus a few indefensible albums that I'm prepared to defend. So the next one could be something of a fight, I think, the podcast. Right, OK. But, um, Look forward to that one then. We, we, shall, we shall see. A few people asked us about our collection. So um, Penny Reynolds, for example, and Klaus Paulsen. And it was how was your personal record collection catalogued and also how many do you have? Oh, um, Paul can answer the question too. Uh, I don't... I don't know how many records I've got. I'm going to guess probably not as many as people might think. I've probably got a couple of thousand alphabetically. That's all. I don't. I don't separate. We're getting into real nerd territory here. I don't. I don't <laughs> separate genre because I don't recognise the concept of genre. Uh, that yeah. and, and there's always that problematic artist that you can't say whether they're this or that. You know, is yeah. is. Mahavishnu Orchestra, a rock band, or are they a jazz band? Well, I mean, I, I, mean, I go for mine. Mine is alphabetical and within that chronological within the alphabetical. And I, and I, know, exa- I know exactly what I've got because it's, it's all because, I think that, you know, when I first knew you, I think I had a couple of thousand LPs and because of moving across London and so on, that became zero LPs. And obviously I, I went the way of the CD. And what's quite funny is that I probably have the same amount 
now that I had 20 years ago. So I've got about a thousand CDs, a hundred CD box sets, and now probably a couple of hundred vinyl. So it's actually quite small. And, and partly for me, it's because I constantly reassess what I like, why I like it, what it, what's the reason for me keeping this? So in a sense, although I constantly, you know, I still buy CDs, I still buy vinyl. Um, I reassess to the point where actually my collection probably hasn't grown for the last Yeah, I think I'm the same. I mean, particularly about over the last year, I probably got rid of half my box sets because I, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with Paul, is that I look at a lot of them and I think I'm never going to listen to 90% of the content of this box set. And it just takes, they take up so much space, don't they? Paul, I can't imagine how many box sets you must have and how much space well, they take up now. in your house. Paul, Paul's neck, Paul's neck is bent double because there are so many box, <laughs> box sets. Yes. pressing down in on that him. room uh, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to use the uh, word hoarder Paul but sorry. life laundry Paul well, life the, laundry I mean, it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you do have to be careful I mean there is that, th- that there's that thin line between collecting records and being a, a hoarder on one of those programs on ITV you know? <laughs> um, so I mean I for the record mine's all in alphabetical chronological within that but the problem is it's not all in one place so this alphabetical thing falls apart when you've got piles in the lounge and piles in the office and piles in the bedroom you know so um so it it gets quite complicated but yeah i mean i think sometimes i look at things and think when was the last time i played that record if it was over five years ago you know is it earning its keep you know is it paying its rent by being in that space that's sort of and um so sometimes i take things to the i took a load of 12 inch singles to the charity shop recently because i thought it was actually a load of Alison Moyer 12 inch singles he whispers but um I was I was thinking well you know I've got the deluxe CD of this ALF album you know I've got it had all the mixes on it do I do I need you know two inches of Alison Moyer 12 inch mixes in my collection but the problem with that philosophy Paul is you take it to its ultimate extreme and you just end up with an iPhone with all your music on it don't you because that takes up the least amount of space of all but I, I, I completely under, I compl- I I'm playing devil's advocate here because I completely understand where you're coming from. Um, the problem is, you, you know, everyone has a finite amount of space and, and you can't just, you know, buy everything and collect everything and have everything because it's, it's not physically possible to do People that. do. I mean, one of my cousins, it's interesting, um, he saw my record collection when I was a teenager, was absolutely entranced by it. He has 20,000 LPs. Yeah. I don't think... Which is... Where where are these? Uh, Apparently, they they take up his entire second floor, the second floor of his house. Well, that's that's Michael from Opeth as well. His entire living room is is basically just LPs. I don't know how his girlfriend puts up with it. But anyway, the point is, I suppose, (laughs) is that I can't think... I probably couldn't think of 20,000 LPs. And I consider myself that has someone that has very eclectic taste. I couldn't think of 20,000 records that I genuinely really like or love. Um, So in that case, I'm imagining that among those 20,000 thousand lps is a lot of stuff that your cousin doesn't actually like that much but they have it because it completes a collection it's the completism gene yeah i I mean for example i think my albums well absolutely they'll be in his collection for that reason that's exactly why i've got your albums yeah but the other point here is um you know record companies are producing eight different colored vinyl copies of mccartney three and so paul mccartney fans you know, the, the obsessive ones are thinking, well, I've got to buy that eight times now. So therefore, you know, it's, it takes up more space and you're, you're buckered. To be fair mm. to the music industry, 
they're trying to give exclusives to certain retailers in certain territories and and that they're not they're not necessarily saying hey paul mccartney fans you need to buy eight copies but but of course you know because of the internet it's quite easy to get hold of things these days there's no barriers anymore so people go off and do it and then blame the record companies for making them spend so much money another thing that isn't kind of discussed very often but there have been increasingly articles on it in in the guardian for example that environmentally streaming is actually worse than vinyl production and cd production at their peak combined right i would happily go back a few steps in terms of technology i would happily forego streaming forego my netflix if this had an environmental impact it seems counterintuitive doesn't it that physical production so even physical production of vinyl if it's peak in the 70s and cd it's peak in the 90s combined is less than the environmental impact of streaming because of the power required for servers this mm. is according to certain research mm. And it is sort of interesting that this isn't discussed more widely, to me, anyway, especially at this point in history. Very interesting, yeah. No, I, I mean, the, I think the power of convenience, you can't underestimate it. I mean, that's, you know, in the 90s, I used to go around to friends' houses and it was all about what amplifier have you got, what speakers have you got, what setup have you got. Um, and, of course, MP3s come in and all that goes mm. out the window because I'd rather have 5,000 songs in my pocket, thanks mm. very much, you know. So, Lyndon Garrett, love the show, but with all the production skills you both possess, why does Tim always sound like he's recording in the toilet? Now, I've got the answer to this one, that basically the first few shows, and hopefully the last couple will be all right, the ones in between were all done in my outbuilding. Now, when I record my vocals in my outbuilding, I've got this Isovox 2 and my Neumann mic inside it, so you get pristine sound. But um, unfortunately, it's got a vaulted ceiling, so it actually does sound like a 19th century toilet. Yeah, you do, you do have the... the uh, well, you had a period where you were still building your studio, didn't you? So you didn't have the soundproofing yeah, in. And, and, and yeah, then when it, and then when it was built, yeah. it sounds even sounds worse. Even worse yeah. But obviously, when I'm doing my vocals, I've got the, the Isovox, so obviously it sounds absolutely fine. So I'm doing this in the house. So hopefully it's going to be slightly better. And the reason I don't do it in the house normally is because we've got, like you, Stephen... We've got a dog downstairs. We've got Birdie, who can be loud. And then also an 11-year-old child who can burst in screaming. So this is why I do it in the 19th century toilet. Right, right. You see, they're all the same things that McCartney had to put up with when he was doing McCartney 1 and 2 at home, in his home studio. Yeah, ex- yeah. exactly, yeah. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, quite a few people asking us what our albums of the year are. Also... Um, what our favourite year for music and least favourite year for music. That's Andreas Hare. So albums of this year? Floating Points, Pharaoh Sanders. Yeah, the Floating Points, Pharaoh Sanders, I think is great. Grass Cut, Over Winter, I think is a lovely album. Got to say the Damon Albon, you know, Damon Albon album, I think is fantastic. The new one, I think it's one of his best. And um, Milk Bone, um, Matt Berry, I think his new trio is... uh, uh, a very lovely album. Elbow's album, I, li- I like. Matt Berry's Blue Elephant came out this year too, I think, didn't it? Maybe early on in the year. Okay. Yes, there you go. Paul's holding it up. That, that's a great record too, yeah. Yeah, it was this year. That, I had that in my list, yeah. I think that was amazing. Clark was all right, if you know that, on Playground in a Lake. And Modern Nature, I thought, especially in terms of packaging, I think the Modern Nature album was was fantastic, if you know that. I don't know. No. Paul, what about you? What are, what are no. the ones who... Oh. So, I really like the new Crowded House album, um, Dreamers Are Waiting, it's called. Um, it's their first album for about 10 years, but 
you know, they, I mean, they split up in 1996, of course, and went away and then came back. But it's been ages, I think, since the last brilliant Crowded House album. But this new one is absolutely amazing. Okay, so wow. It's a wonderful record, but it, it, I don't think it really did anything. It just sort of came and went, but... Which is um, odd, given their status, really, isn't it? Well, I know. Um, I think. I mean, I think lockdown and COVID and all that. They were supposed to tour, and then that got postponed. And I don't think yeah. that helped. But um, it's a real shame because, I mean, you know, Neil Finn is such a master songwriter, and and, and you know, Mitchell Froome's in the band now. It's a bit of a family thing going on. They've got, oh, right. They've got his sons Liam and Elroy in the band, um, and it's a yeah, it's a one, it's a wonderfully kind of crafted album, but it's. Um, there's a lot of atmosphere and texture to it, so I'd really highly recommend that. To be fair, Paul, just picking up on something you just said, isn't that true of most albums? They just come and go very quickly now. The turnover is very quick. I think most, certainly most artists that come from, you know, what you would call legacy artists, artists that have been going for a few years now, their albums come out, the fan base buy them, they disappear off the face of the earth. It's very, it's, it's very depressing. I mean, unless, unless you're sort of Queen's greatest hits, Abba yeah. Gold... Adele, Taylor Swift, or you know, all these sort of artists. Then, yeah, I guess that is the case, and I, I, I really sort of mourn the um, the death of the single in that respect because, mm. you know, releasing four or five physical singles from an album, you know, gave an album a lifespan, right. and, yeah. and you gave it time to breathe and. Whereas it just doesn't, obviously that doesn't happen anymore. And you get a few videos on YouTube, it comes out. And as you say, it kind of disappears the next week. Mm. Everything is oriented towards that pre-order, mm. really. And I think, and I think that's, that's a real shame because you know, in the, old, yeah, day, in the yeah. old days, you might have, you know, one, maybe two singles, you know. Um, and it didn't, it wasn't enough to spoil the enjoyment of the actual journey of a record. But I think if there's too much comes out beforehand... That's very yeah. annoying, I think. I think part of the problem, I mean, I, I had this with the Future Bites and part of the problem was, of course, it got delayed. So we had to fill the void with something. And I think I ended up releasing four or five of the songs before the album came out. So half the album was familiar by the time people got it. But also I think part of the problem now is the lead time between an announcement for a record and the actual release gets longer and longer and longer. Like, for example, we've just announced the new Porcupine Tree record. And it's coming out in June next year. And it was announced in October. So what are we going to do? We're going to have to fill that. We're going to keep momentum, fill that time now. And of course, a lot of that is down to the vinyl manufacturing lead times now. Yeah. So yeah. eight months yeah. between finishing an album, at least, at least it's eight months between finishing it and actually crazy. being able to release it. It's insane. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. crazy. Well, you were, well, the funny thing is my solo album's coming out a week before The Porcupine Tree. It's not been announced yet, but Stephen was um, mixing and mastering both at the same time right. and yeah. he was working to a kind of october early november deadline for both of us to get this kind of late june release okay tim another question maybe another question okay i mean obviously people were asking about our favorite reissues of this year for me not again not that much this year i mean i, I think the jethro tull reissue program continued really nicely benefit was this year and i think they've done a fantastic job in terms of the detail in sleeve notes, the detail in imagery, and being very generous with presenting the album as it should be, plus the extras and, and live extras. So I think that's been a fantastic series, and I know you've been a part of this, Stephen. Vinyl, um, Montgolfier Brothers, um, 17 Stars. There was um, a reissue on a small indie label, and it's just a beautiful version of a beautiful album. Paul, well, what about you with reissues? I know we're kind of preempting what I'm sure you'll do on your website here slightly, but... Um... Yeah, <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I mean, I mean, the the big one for me was the um, 
this stands head and shoulders above everything else, and that's the Plastic Ono band reissue, John Lennon. I thought that was that was incredible what they did with that record. You know, mm. um, there was just you know, six CDs of. I mean, normally to go back to what you were saying earlier on, Stephen. I mean, you kind of think, do you need that much? But because it's John Lennon, because it's his first proper solo album, I mean, it was just incredible, you know. He did 94 takes of the song Mother, you know. And he, they weren't all on the... I was going to say, are they, they all on all, there, Christ? No, <laughs> no, they weren't all on right. there, but, you know, that, ju- that just shows you the yeah. sort of... Yeah, only 92 yeah. were on Because I always thought of that album as, you know, he went in, he did it, he came out, and it was kind of done in five minutes. But, you know, he, he took his time and he really spent a lot of time and energy on that record. And mm. the way that they presented that particular box set, you know, they, they just... It was absolutely amazing. They had these things called element mixes where they would go back to the master tapes and, and if there was some bit of organ that they chose not to put in the original song, they'd bring that up and sort of show you what that sounded like, what what could have been but wasn't, that kind of thing. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. And then they had the raw studio mixes where it was less polished and, then, and they had um, these evolution mixes which were like mini documentaries where it went through every stage of the... The recording process it started off with the kind of scratchy demo and then ended up with the sort of finished song just to play devil's a devil's advocate here and going back to our discussion earlier is there a lot of that stuff you would listen to more than once do you think well i mean i i, I found myself listening to it a lot at the time i haven't listened to it for a while because it was i think it came out back in april but 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 it's there to sort of dip into and it's mm. it's such a such an important kind of record i mean that album, it took me years to realise that that album even existed as a sort of teenager. Was, I knew about Imagine in 1971. Everyone sort of knew about that. My dad used to own that record, so we had that in the house. But this kind of missing album, there's no singles in the UK from the Plastic Ono Band album. So it was, it was kind of a weird thing to discover in my early 20s. And I've always loved the rawness of that record. It's a great album. And I think it's interesting you talk about the raw production that, you know, the, the Beatles obviously were known for increasingly sophisticated productions, certainly around the 67 period. But the George Harrison, All Things Must Pass, and um, obviously McCartney, these were very raw albums as well and it was kind of interesting that the Beatles themselves sort of rejected the ornate innovative productions okay cool uh, I just wanted to mention actually sorry Stephen I just wanted to mention um it's it's halfway house between a reissue and a new record but that was the Prince reissue Welcome to America hmm. and uh that was a, a kind of unreleased album that that came out sort of in the middle part of this year and I thought that was just incredible because it was recorded in 2010 um, between two fairly average Prince albums that came out, which one of them was called 2010 and the other one was called Plectrum Electrum. So the, this was a sort of hole in the middle. And it's a wonderful sort of organic sounding sort of 70s kind of funky kind of um, album. And, um, you know, and it's typical Prince, this genius record, which is a sort of has a great theme to it, you know, sort of socio-economic kind of lyrics and... Um, it was just hidden away and um, so that that was wonderful to see that I thought Mm, I agree yeah my kind of idea of a really nice box set these days is one that kind of compiles catalogues so I really like the the box set of the Seafeel stuff from the Warp Records Seafeel records from the 90s Rupts and Flex which came out um, which is basically just all of the work they actually put out officially uh, on the label. So there's no outtakes. Well, there's a couple, but very, very little in the way of outtakes or leftovers. It's just a lot of, a lot of music, which I didn't have, kind of all compiled in a really nice package. Um, 
And I really like the reissue of Square Pushes Feed Me Weird Things on triple vinyl, folks, as well. Ooh. There we go. So proper drum and bass, Tim, not that fake McCartney. No, I think Square Pusher did actually say McCartney too. I think he put it up there alongside Ferris Sanders, Miles Davis, Eno was being big a big influence, influence on his sound, yeah. Um, Jim Patton, and I'm sure we can all answer this one. Have you ever bought an album by a band or artist you didn't know purely because you liked the cover artwork and presentation? Oh, I'm sure I must have done. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the other thing, isn't it? That was the other thing about going to a record store, wasn't it? Is that you could sort of, you could pick up the records and see the see the, the artwork and the and sometimes even just the credits would make you interested in an album yeah yeah yeah, yeah. oh yeah. mellotron i mean for, <laughs> oh, you know. mellotron let's get that one. <laughs> uh yes uh, yeah certainly i can't think of examples but yes certainly i would have done that in the old in the olden yeah, days I think, yeah. I think i've done that as well but. 20, any 23 yeah. envelope cover is like oh my god I, I have to own this and hypnosis were kind of similar in a way that there's something quite enigmatic that drew you in and you are right as well when you looked at the the back of certain sleeves and you saw certain instruments you know the dulcimer was that selling fender roads fender roads if it's a if it's yes, if it's fender a jazz Rhodes, record from the early 70s fender roads yeah that will always do sorry paul you were going to say um was it, i was no i was just going to agree really i i you know artwork is so important and that's one of the sad things i think about you know online streaming and and even with cds just that compression of the artwork sometimes they'll rejig artwork for cds so it's not even the proper album cover um so yeah I, i'm sure i've done that plenty of times so i was about to say that what's interesting is sometimes it's some of my favorite artists have got some of my least favorite sleeves so blue nile for example you know remain one of my favorite artists of all time and i think almost all of their albums are indis- indispensable all four of them but i don't think they've ever had good cover artwork you know perhaps a walk across the rooftops is atmospheric and that's about as much as you can say well that's interesting because i've noticed a trend for basically shit artwork on new albums these days i don't you know whether it's sting or you know whoever but it's, yeah. it's kind of like they just can't be bothered it just gets phoned in because they know it's going to be a, a thumbnail on a spotify or whatever I think you're 100% right. And I think it also, if you look at advertising on YouTube or a lot of advertising on television, it's infinitely poorer. You know, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, even up to the early 2000s, some of the best creative minds would be involved in advertising because there was a lot of money. Also, I remember thinking the Talk Talk covers were always very underachieving for me in terms of the quality of the music. I remember it was slightly disappointing. Yes, with, I agree. You know, I mean, the last two albums basically had the same cover, didn't they? Laughing Stock and Spirit of Ian. So couldn't they have, you know, such an extraordinary record that he's obviously sweated tears of blood to make and that's the best you can come up with. Oh, let's just have the same cover as we had last time. Uh, but I think, you know, I mean, we know this because, I mean, Stephen and I were, were managed by Talk Talks Management and, and I don't think they were interested. No. So basically James Marsh and the manager Keith Aspden, they defined the look of the band. And I think it shows because I don't think there's a particular connect. You know, the imagery, I don't mind. I think James Marsh is a fantastic illustrator fine, yeah, yeah. And, and the covers... Yeah work but i don't think they necessarily work with the no. music they seem entirely separate entities and um the same with blue nile i guess that they just put everything into the music it's like okay that's your job to the design department style or rouge or yeah. whoever was was doing it whereas i think you and i tend to from the beginning um you know one of the stories that people probably don't know is that love you to bits for example from like no man that was, I think, the hundredth image that Carl had come up with. I don't, I don't think he'd ever had anything quite as as bad as that. But you and I do tend to be um, 
quite difficult and quite obsessive when it comes to artwork. There's no, there's no question there are certain labels that still seem to care very much about presentation artwork. I think of that label Ghost Box or even, you know, labels like Warp Records that use people like the Designers Republic. Yeah, yeah. Um, but certainly the majors seem to be allocating less and less money to, to packaging and presentation, unless ironically enough, unless it's a big reissue box set and then they're quite happy to spend the money because they know that the price tag of that box set will justify the extra money they're spending on design and artwork. Let's have one more, one more question maybe, Tim, and then try and wrap one it up. One more. I'll ask, you, I'll ask you a really quick question here from uh, Jonathan Ayala. Why don't you guys ever mention hip-hop albums? Is it that you're not familiar with the genre or that you aren't generally fans? I think right from the beginning, myself and Tim said that we would talk about albums which we are personally invested in, you know. We're not going to cover musical genres that we're not... Um, we're not we're not familiar with, and I think the the bottom line is that my, neither myself or Tim listen to a lot of hip hop music. At least the only time I did was in the very early nineties. I really enjoyed stuff like Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul, but I'm not familiar with that world, and I have nothing mm. against it. But I just don't know that music. I cannot talk with any authority about it. So I think it's better to stick with what you know. We've kind of stuck with what we know, haven't we, Tim? To a degree, yeah, which hopefully is eclectic. I mean, for me, a little like you, I think late 80s, early 90s hip-hop. I mean, for me, it was more listening to it from a production point of view. I kind of loved the way in which hip-hop artists would mash genres together. You know, the, the, the sample culture I found really inspiring and often would put really unexpected samples up against one another and, and in quite an unmusical way. You know, one of my favourite artists of the 90s was Tricky. And I think Tricky in a way, was quite unmusical, but because of that was incredibly innovative because of what he'd put together in terms of his um, soundscapes and samples. You know, we were very clear right from the beginning this would be a very, very personal perspective on, on the music world for, uh, from us, yeah. Yeah, although I think we've missed... I mean, one of the things, again, that, you know, as I was saying, we, we often do four-hour broadcasts and miss out an awful lot. You know, actually, we've listened to more than we discuss, and often in a given year, you know, I'm kind of amazed that, um, say, 1992, I realised one of my favourite albums from that year, Suzanne Vega, that was left out, and Mitchell Froome produced recording 99... Point nine Fahrenheit degrees, was that it? Um, which I thought was brilliant. Did we not talk about that? We didn't, no, we'd forgotten it. In the last podcast, uh, 1986, there's so much. Um, a Certain Ratio's Force, which is a favourite album for me that year. We talked about A Certain Ratio um, on another episode, at least, though, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. I think sometimes we ignore albums and artists from a certain year because we've already given them too much airtime. Obviously not the drinking game artists, which we've got to mention, even if they're not released an album that year, we've got to mention it. Oh, Robert Fripp, Robert Fripp did this and he did that, didn't he? Well, he's a bit of a tart. He does tend to pop up on a lot of records. Anyway, here, Toby Little, this could be a good end question, if you want, which is, um, you're both marooned on a desert island. Bizarrely, with a very good hi-fi setup and electricity. You can only have one album from each decade, from the 60s to the present day. But here's the catch. You've got to share that album from each decade. You don't get to choose one each. Wow. Uh, do we include Paul? It's a bit in... like Squid Game, isn't it? It's a bit like Squid Game. Do we include Paul in this too? Because it could be tricky to get three. Okay. No, no, leave me. Leave, leave, me, leave, out. leave me out. Yeah. Well, well, you know what? Look, Paul would dismiss all of the decades and just say, right, I've got this equipment. McCartney 2. McCartney 2, yeah. That's what he'd say. And, exactly. I, and I wouldn't blame him. McCartney 2, possibly, yeah, possibly London Town. He might say press to play. Uh, no, well, I look, Paul, say that. I, when I, I listened to press to play, play, part of the reason I quite liked it as well was because I'd not heard it necessarily. Can we shut up? Can we shut up about Paul well, McCartney? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, we, we, we'll have to talk. We'll, 
We'll have to take flowers in the dirt offline because I've got a lot to say about that record. Okay, listen. Uh, right, well, Tim, what, what are we going to do? So we, 60s, 60s. Is there an album we can agree on? In a silent way, Miles Davis. I'll, 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 that's my first volley across the bow. In a silent way, Miles Davis. I was going for Scott three or five leaves left. Piper at the gates of dawn. Oh, five leaves left. Yeah, five leaves left. Scott three. I don't know. If I, I don't know. If I, S- sketches of Spain. Sketches of Spain. Well, only just in the sixties. Not in a silent way. Okay, <laughs> let's go with uh, five leaves left. Uh, in a silent way. And what was the other one you said that I kind of agreed with? Oh, Scott three. Scott three. Well, you prefer Scott four, don't you? I do. Would I want to listen to Scott Walker's voice ad infinitum for the rest of eternity? That's the only question I've got. I mean, I love it. I, lo- I do love it, but it could it could become a morning on the desert island when it grates a bit on me. Do you know what I mean? It, yeah, but come on, it's it's not exactly one of the later albums, is it? You know. Do I hear twenty one? Yeah, exactly. Whereas Nick and Miles, I could never get tired of those sounds. I could never get tired of those sounds. I know you mean, and then we're missing out, of course, so many important albums in that. We are, but this is, I'm just shooting from the hip here. 70s. Yeah. 70s. Tangerine Dream Zeit. I'm sure you'd agree with me on that. (laughs) That would not be on my list, actually. What would we pick Um, from 70s? Actually, what would I pick from that? I mean, because again, that was a, a decade that one of the things we're talking about, you know, from the Beatles evolution in the 60s. And you think of the 70s and the 80s, the, the music scene was rapidly evolving with every given I know. year. The Tony Mansell singers with the Hilton Airs swinging in a winter wonderland from 1974. Okay. Would you agree with that? Lonnie Liston's... No, no. Lonnie Liston-Smith, Cosmic Echoes. Actually, you know, John... But then I'm thinking, you know, God, John Martin. And I always liked his uh, One World, which was, which was always less fated than Solid Air, but I, I really like... Yeah, 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 yeah. John Martin, yeah. Should we go with John Martin, One World, then? I love that record. Yeah. Okay, let's go with that. I can't imagine I would get tired of hearing it. Let's just say that, yeah. Right, 80s. Kate Bush, The Dreaming would be up there for me. I love it. It could grate a bit if you heard it every single day of the rest of your life, couldn't it? So It, it could, but then, you know, I, I, you always quite like that irritation, that kind of scratching of the scam. Mm. Colour of Spring, Sign of the Time, Parade, Parade. Parade is astonishing. I love it, yeah. Mm. Uh, come on, Paul, you must have an idea here. 80s. Well, I, I, I like Tim's idea. Tim's idea for the dreaming, I would probably agree with that. Let's go with the dreaming record. then. But Hands of, hands, hands it of is Love brilliant is too. Yeah. yeah, I love that. I think the dreaming I go for, because it's for the reason you were saying, could you play it again and again and again? And one thing that's kind of interesting here is that my, um, my son, who's now 11, when he was about two, he got into the Beatles. And we just had to play the Beatles for years in the car, on the CD player in the car, you'd be glad to know, Paul. And what was brilliant about this was there was so much detail in the music that it never became tedious. So he, at one point, became quite interested in craft work, Man Machine. And I have to say, I bored of that after about 10 listens. I kind of felt... I'd got, brilliant album, masterpiece, innovative, but I'd got... All I was going to get out of it uh, over those mm. 10 listens, whereas with the Beatles, I was finding new sounds, new approaches, new production techniques. And I think that goes for the dreaming. That Actually, the dreaming would be a great choice in the 1980s because it is so dense and so clever and so detailed. I love it. I'm happy to go with the dreaming. That's a good choice. That is a good choice. Yeah. Right. 90s. 90s. Silence. 
Absolutely. So, no, there are, again, there are so many albums. Like, you know, Songs for Drella. Um, no, I don't want to read John that. Cale. I don't even want to hear that once. <laughs> I don't even want to hear that once, let alone for the rest of eternity on a what desert an island. album. It's a Material Song is a beautiful album. I don't want to hear um, that either. Scott Walker Tilt, 1995. Scott Walker Tilt is good. Um, isn't there a Laughing Stock? Laughing Stock. Come oh, on. La- yeah, okay. Oh, uh, I'll give you that. We can listen to that for the rest of eternity. I'll Laughing be quite stock. Happy. No argument. No fights. Right. So we'll have that. Somebody asked a question of 2016, best year for music ever. And strangely, a moonshaped pool and Bowie's Black Star, I would put in my greatest albums of all time. Silence. Tumbleweed. Silence from Tumbleweed. tumbleweed. Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, Black Star. My God. Because if you go into <laughs> no, the no. 2010s, <laughs> if we're not saying Black Star, there's just no debate. No, I do. I like those records. I like those records. Yeah. Yeah, I Black like those Star records, is amazing. Yeah. Uh, 90s, we're going to go for Laughing Stock, though, right? Laughing Stock. 2000s. Can we just lump the 2000s all into one decade? Because there's only about four albums I've bought since mm. 2000. All right. yeah. <laughs> well, no, I'm still <laughs> buying quite a lot, you know, new as well as old. But um, in terms of older artists, 50 Words for Snow, Black Star, um, as we say, a Moonshaped Pool. Um... I would put Ariel above. Oh, Ariel, I love. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll go with I you on that. I agree with you. Yeah. Fantastic album. Yeah. So we've got. Two Miles Davis albums and two Kate Bush albums. Is that it? A Talk Talk And two Scott Walker albums as well. Talk Talk. That's that's true. That's that's true. You can't actually choose Kate Bush again, really, can you? I don't think I want to. I mean, I like Ariel, but I don't think it's... It can't surely be the best album of the 2000s, is it? 21st century. Oh, I think uh, it's, oh God, 1990s as well. Uh, the Soft Bulletin, Flaming Lips. I don't want to hear that. Put that up there. No, I don't, no you're just picking your favourite albums again. You're just picking your favourite... Oh, right. Look at the question, Tim. Look at the question. Which albums well, can got, you again? And I... Fantastic production. Okay, you know, all right. What about Thundercat? Do you like him? I don't know. I don't. I'm not familiar. Thundercat. You're going to give me a review now, aren't you? No, I love. Well, he's he's the George Duke for our present day. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean that in a complimentary way. I like George Duke. Uh, McCartney three. No, I don't know. To, what, what albums have come Actually, out? Actually, Chaos 20- and Creation. Chaos and Creation's a great album. That is, that is a good record. I've never heard it. What albums have come <gasps> out in the 2000s that we both... Come on, Tim. What albums have we both raved about together? Well, this is a thing that maybe we will get to. We, we have, because we raised, we raved about a lot in 2001, including Kid A and Amnesiac, if we're talking about 21st century albums. There, is there nothing that we both agree that we like in the 21st century, apart from Kid do A and Amnesiac? Do you like Amnesi- Black Star? No, I do like it. I do like it. Okay. Um, what, what about that album that Sting and Shaggy made together? Oh, that was brilliant. Actually, I've never heard it, to be honest. Uh, Sting, the album I was quite liked by him was um, The Soul Cages, which I thought was his most experimental, expansive and heartfelt album. Tumbleweed again. Tumbleweed. 1991, Stephen. Nothing, <laughs> nothing to do with the 2000s. Nothing to do with the 2000s. Nothing to do with Shaggy. I, c- I can't think of anything in the... T- there must be loads of... Didn't we do one of the t- 21st well, century years? Points. You love that, for example. I, I points. do like Farrow that. Sanders. I do Farrow like Sanders, that. a man in his 80s, still making some beautiful, beautiful music. Leonard Cohen's last album. What an amazing album. What a voice. Yeah, but the thing is, with a lot of these records, I, you, you mentioned, I said, oh, I quite like it. But to listen to it every day for the rest of my life... On Ariel, a desert come island, on, Ariel, Kate Bush. Whilst having to look at your fizzog across the other side of the campfire... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and it will be bo- both of our physics deteriorating as the years go by. Come on, things that we well. both... Yeah, come on, what do we both like from the 21st century? 100th Window. Oh, love that album. Oh, yes. We both thought that was fantastic. Ah, I think you might hear the bullseye there. And I think that's the most underrated album they ever made. 
I entirely agree with you. Oh my God, we found it. Massive Attack, 100th Window. And I could listen to that over and over again, and I do listen to it quite often. So if you're up for that, I'll go with that one. Yeah, yes. I'll take it. Massive Attack, 100th Window. Fantastic record. Absolutely fantastic record. Of course, Tumbleweed here from Paul. Tumbleweed from Paul. No, I, I do know that record, and I agree. It's a great, it's a great album. Oh, good. All right. We've, we've got a consensus here. We've got a consensus. Um, I think that's a, a fantastic point to wrap things up. Uh, of a chaotic episode that uh, Tim will be editing all the, all the duff bits out of <laughs> later on. If you're I'll be editing it. all of my errors out and keeping all of yours in, obviously. Yes, yeah, absolutely, as you normally do, yeah. OK, <laughs> so oh, thank you very much, Paul, for joining us. I hope you enjoyed it. I think it was a lot of fun to have you on. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. Yeah, and if anybody out there doesn't know Paul's fantastic website, superdeluxeedition.com, um, it's the place to be these days. It's, it's where all it the hip. Indeed. It's where all the hip kids it's, are hanging out. It's the out. only place to be, isn't it? <laughs> it's where well, talking. Yeah. If it, you, I was going to say I was going to go back to an, an older question that we we're talking about. Whether oh, for goodness sake! I'm trying to wrap it no, up. I know you're trying to wrap, but this is important in a way. Do younger people like physical? And there have been sort of signs, shoots of recovery. So as I've said, you know, the book, the designs of books, the sales of physical books, up, all good. And certainly in in Wells, the great cathedral city in Somerset. I've seen young people in their teens going to the secondhand shop, buying CDs and being excited by it. And one of the things, I only mention it because it was today that my partner's nephew, who is 15, do you know what he wants for Christmas? No. An Van- HMV voucher so he can buy some CDs. Van de Graaff generator box set. Van de Graaff generator box set. No, an HMV va- That was a good reissue voucher. from this year, actually. That was a good reissue. That was a good reissue. Yeah, yeah you're yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that, an H&V voucher so we can buy CDs. 15. Well, that, that's, that sounds very promising. That sounds very promising. Uh, let's hope it becomes more than just a, you know, a few outliers like that. It becomes a trend, nay, an epidemic. A younger generation <laughs> rushing to buy CDs. A, pan, a pandemic. A pandemic. Yes. Thank you. A pandemic of CD purchasing and of, vinyl purchasing. Of youngsters, youngsters buying CDs, listening to this podcast and posting comments on Paul's website. Yeah. Perfect. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Cheers, Paul. Thanks for coming right. on, mate. Thank bye you. Bye. Merry Christmas. All right, bye. Merry, <laughs> Merry Christmas. Christmas. Bye for now.